This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 296, a conversation with Ron Friends. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans. This is episode 296. It's our Conversation with Ron Friends episode. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Uh, we are so close to episode 300. It's almost here, so it's very exciting. But before 300, we have a few more episodes. So this one was uh, one of my personal favorites thus far. It's a two-hour conversation with uh, famed illustrator Ron Friends. We had a really great chat about a lot of different things in his career, although not necessarily the ones you might expect. Uh, uh, before the interview, I... I chatted with Ron and it was kind of like, you know, what have people talked about the most and I want to go in the other direction. So we talked a lot about uh, the MC2 universe, which is something obviously he's talked about a lot in the past. But have a lot of people talked about A-Next because we spend a good amount of time on it. We talk about his experiences with DC, his experiences with Marvel, a wide array array of different uh, areas uh, throughout his career. Uh, Hopefully we'll have him on in the next few months for a second episode to kind of go through some of the things we didn't chat about this time. Uh, But uh, as I said, it was a a really fun and enjoyable episode with Ron, Uh, so I hope that you, the listener, can enjoy it as much as I did uh, doing it. Um, If you want to email us, you can email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes as well, as well as listen to us on Stitcher if that's your preferred method of listening to podcasts. So without further ado, let's jump right on into the episode as we sit down with Ron Friends. So, Ron, welcome to Comic Shenanigans. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm always flattered to be asked. So we've uh, got a lot of questions today, and I'm going to try and keep this as exciting for you as possible because I know you've given many, many, many interviews over the years. That's incredibly kind of you. Thank you. I'm sure we'll, we'll start with the probably the not-as-exciting questions, and then I'll try to figure out some more interesting ones as we go. But uh, just kind of, I always ask my, uh, my guests kind of a background as to what kind of got them into comics as a reader before they were ever in the industry. Well, I had a brother three years older, so I really don't remember a time when there weren't comics around. I, I, you know, my earliest memory of a comic is a, is a world's finest comic where Robin and Jimmy Olsen were faking their own deaths and Superman and Batman were mourning over their graves and stuff. But we always had like the DCs around and everything. And, and by the time the late sixties, I was born in 60. So the Spider-Man TV, uh, cartoon series came around. I was seven, you know, six or seven or whatever. And, uh, just loved it. I mean, I, in fact, I probably discovered it in syndication because I remember us getting up for grade school and eating our breakfast while watching Spider-Man on TV, you know, at like 7 in the morning or something like that, uh, along with uh, the local news and uh, an editorial by the station manager, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, but from that time on, from, like, from, from the time I discovered Spider-Man and Marvel, through the Marvel superhero cartoons and through comic books that we traded with, a, with another uh, young kid in the neighborhood, uh, I, from the time I was like 8... If you asked me what I wanted to do, it was grow up, work for Marvel Comics, and draw Spider-Man. And I peaked early. I, <laughs> because I was so directed, I, uh, I took a Votech course in high school and, uh, and went to two years at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh. But all of it was in pursuit of that dream. I never, never let go of my dream of working in comics. And because I was so directed, I, I was very fortunate to have accomplished it in 
83, something like that. And uh, I was, I had, uh, in the meantime, gotten a job at a small animation studio in Pittsburgh that did uh, local and regional TV commercials. Probably the the biggest thing we, we worked on were the uh, the animated titles for the Creepshow movies. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, the first Creepshow, I was an animation assistant. The second one, I came back and did the illustrations for the opening credits and the pages that faded in and out. Uh, for the second one, um, so it, you know that was one of the bigger things. The other one was um, uh, was a Tom Petty's "Running Down a Dream" uh, video. Uh, we did the animation for that as well. Oh wow, that's but, pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't working full time at the studio at that point anymore, and I I was just helping out a little bit on that. But uh, I you know I never did any full animation or anything like that. Uh, it never interested me as much as comics. But I worked there and did uh, my Marvel work at night uh, through KSAR and Marvel Team-Up and Star Wars. I didn't quit the animation studio until I was offered Spider-Man. And uh, so, but that was all within like a couple of year period, I guess, something like that. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, by the time I was 24, 25, I had accomplished my dream of working on Spider-Man it only lasted it lasted far shorter than I wanted it to because of um, things <laughs> uh, DeFalco and I were fired famously by Jim Owsley uh, and uh, so that that stint on Spider-Man was far more truncated than I would have wished but uh, we survived and went on to other things and seven years on Thor and a couple of years on Superman and two years on Thunderstrike and you know I mean it's it's been a real ride I mean I I've loved every minute of it I'm, I'm a very 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 lucky guy it's it's something that I try to remind myself of when deadlines are pending and, <laughs> and the spirit's not moving me is that how many people really get a chance to to be doing what they wanted to do since they were a kid you know I mean that's such a very rare thing it's a gift and I, I try to appreciate it as much as possible I'm going to move out of sequence for a qu- for a minute. Just want to ask a question: When you are at conventions and you're you're signing things or you're doing commissions, what what who are the characters that you find that m- people kind of associate you with the most with? Is it Spider Man or is it Thor or Thunderstrike or? It it, it depends. Uh, I would have to say commission wise, if we're going to use that as a barometer, uh, I get a lot of Hobgoblin, uh, a lot of Black Suit Spider Man. Um, I do my share of Thor stuff, but uh, I, I think honestly, if I look at my commission lists over the years, it's it's probably a lot of black suit Spider-Man, a lot of Hobgoblin, a lot of Spider-Man mostly, which is you know which is really kind of interesting and nice because DeFalco and I, you know, as as I alluded to earlier, we really only owned the book for like two years, but it was a very active two years. It was the black suit stuff, it was the Hobgoblin stuff, it was. You know, Tom insisting on doing, uh, I'm sorry, the legendary Tom DeFalco. <laughs> contractually obligated to, to call him that. Um, he wanted to create new characters. So, you know, we, we created Puma and Black Fox. And it was a really wonderful period of, of time on that book. I, we had an incredible amount of fun on the book. And it's nice that people remember it as fondly as they do. That along with the kid who collects Spider-Man with Roger Stern. I mean, that's huge. Mm-hmm. And uh, people remember me for that. So, yeah, the association to Spider-Man has really stuck, um, even though it was only two years and it was 
God knows how many years ago. You know, that kind of thing. I do get my uh, the, the, a certain number of fans who are Thor fans. And, and what's really wonderful is to this day, I still have people coming up telling me how much they enjoyed Thunderstrike and asking for Thunderstrike commissions. Uh, and that's very gratifying since that was a character we created from the ground up and and uh, you know it was cancelled under unfortunate circumstances it was a victim of uh, Ron Perlman's people mm. coming in and and saying if we can't cancel half the line the half that's left will sell twice as well <laughs> and of course the, the books they were they targeted for cancellation were books like War Machine and Thunderstrike that were the, you know, the, the uh, second tier characters the, the spin-off characters to to the lead characters and even more ironically as Thunderstrike was cancelled because there was no thought at that point of cancelling Thor that didn't happen until Heroes Reborn when they brought in the image guys and they cancelled Thor and you know I, I mean when that happened I was tearing my hair out going oh my god timing is everything you know so I, I don't know if that did I answer your question yes mostly Sp- Spider-Man Hobgoblin I some I, I oftentimes will talk to my rep and say if I have to do another if I have to find another angle to do Hobgoblin on his glider I'm gonna hang myself you know that kind of thing uh, so I do a lot of those so and we didn't even create Hobgoblin we just uh, built off of what Roger and uh, Romita Jr. had left us you know so of course now, um, on a similar kind of bend, so the idea that obviously, so the most popular commissions you get are obviously Spider-Man, etc. So I'm guessing over the years, a lot of the questions you usually get are probably about, again, Spider-Man, Thor, etc. What of your work do you find you get to talk about the least? And let's talk about that. <laughs> well, that's very sweet of you. For the longest time, it was Thor, but we then were contacted by, I believe it was Back Issue Magazine, and we did a big interview about Thor, so I can't complain about that too much anymore. Um I don't know. Uh, you're going to have to help me as to what your listeners would be interested in, to tell you the truth. Because um, they're interested in everything. I, I find that people like to know kind of, they like to know the ins and outs of the business, obviously, but also, you know, kind of what motivates you, what is in, has interested you as a creator. And again, trying to focusing on stuff that you've done that maybe hasn't gotten enough focus from others, but you were really proud of. Well, I mean, as far as uh, proud... Um, working, you know, from, uh, from from earliest to latest. I mean, I was incredibly proud of our two-year run on Thunderstrike. Uh, as, I, as I alluded to before, it was a character that we created from the ground up. The character, I, I mean, <laughs> it makes me crazy a little bit. Every time there's these retro reviews of Thunderstrike, everybody thinks they're very clever by bringing up the mullet, you know? <laughs> um, some of us lived through the mullet. It was a fact of the time. That's not really a review. You know what I mean? Pointing out what's 90s about something that was published in the 90s is a little ridiculous. But it's it's, kind of, it's a little like pointing out the sexism and the stuff from the early 60s. You know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, I, I because nobody ever mentions the wide shoulders on the women's suits, but everybody mentions the damn mullet. But any, uh, anyway... I was very proud, very passionate about Thunderstrike. Loved that character. And what was really neat about it was that so did the readers. Uh, Tom and I have been very fortunate. We have, uh, we apparently love what we do so much that I think it really does come through on the page. I think that level of commitment and that level of 
love and a sense of humor and a sense of, of um, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, we don't take ourselves too seriously, mm-hmm. but we take the material seriously. And, and I think that engages the reader in a way that has been incredibly gratifying over the years. I think our, I think our Spider-Man stuff did that. I think our Thor stuff did that. I think Eric Masterson kind of became an embodiment of that because, you know, people look back on it now and see it as a, uh, you know, an unholy bend in this Thor mythos that happened to the book for a while, but it was incredibly popular. The mail was incredibly positive. Mm-hmm. And to the point that, you know, our original plan was when the time came, we were going to, Eric was going to die tragically and Thor was going to give up the throne, which he had taken, and because Loki killed Eric and he realized it was wrong of me to put a target on Eric. I've got to get back to Earth and start doing what I was always doing, you know, that kind of thing. And it was sales, solely sales. The sales department, when they said, so what's the plan for Eric? And Tom told them, and they went, well, we don't think that's a good idea because (laughs) these books are really selling well. So it was was sales that determined that Eric get his own book. Hmm. It was our personal decision. And again, it was very flattering and gratifying that Al Milgram and everybody wanted to come over to the Thunderstrike book with us because, you know, obviously other people had done Thor before us and other people would do Thor after us, but Eric was our guy. So, you know, we moved over to do Eric. And uh, and those two years were, were a lot of fun. And again, as I said, it wasn't canceled because of low sales. It was canceled because of, you know, uh, the mechanism of the higher-ups and all that crap. It was a, it was a bitter pill to swallow. Mm-hmm. Now, so uh, that this, so that was something I was really proud of. I mean, uh, I was really proud of MC2. Um, I only wish it had been marketed as originally intended. I think by now, I think a lot of people have heard that originally MC2 was supposed to be an, an outreach to uh, the big chain stores. Uh, it was going to be like three packs of comics that would hmm. be sold to a more general audience, uh, which was why it was a second generation of Marvel with not, it wasn't really continuity heavy and uh, was a little lighter in tone. They, those books were never meant to survive uh, in the direct sales outlets. They weren't created for the direct sales outlets. Unfortunately, the contracts were never signed or pursued to sell them in the venue they were meant to be sold in. So, the fact that Spider-Girl survived 13, 14 years in the direct sales market is just a testament to, you know, Tom DeFalco and Pat Olive being able to hit a nerve with uh, with the work they were doing, and uh, you know, and I was lucky enough to continue that with DeFalco for for years and years. But uh, you know, it, it, when A Next went the way of all flesh, and when Fantastic Five went the way of all flesh, none of that was really as heartbreaking or as bitter a pill to swallow as Thunderstrike because those books were never meant to survive even as long as they did in the direct sales outlets. So, uh, uh, you know, that was a, a more of a missed opportunity that we had no control over than anything else. But that was, you know, but that was something that, again, anytime you can help build something from the ground up, it, it's very, 
it's very gratifying and very uh, uh, exciting when it when it clicks with people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's still a very active Spider Girl message board that uh, that Defalco and I go on every once in a while, and and uh, you know the fans are incredibly loyal and uh, still miss May Day and support whatever ten or five page installment they can get in Spider Island. And, and are very vocal, and uh, it, it's they're they're a great group of people too. I mean, the few I've corresponded with um, just seem like really solid citizens and, and <laughs> people who who you know tend to enjoy comics that that have a more uh, positive message, a more a more positive uh, uh, bent to them than than some of the stuff that's being done today. But uh, so there's that. We did a one-shot, uh, Superman Beyond, that I'm very proud of. I mean, uh, there are a couple of issues of my run on Superman that I was happy with and, you know, and things like that. But uh, Only a couple? Um, my, my run on Superman was, it, it was a very different animal. Um, I was very spoiled working with DeFalco, um, being involved in the storytelling. And uh, that was not the case on the Superman books. Plus the fact the Superman books were on a, an incredibly tight schedule where they were, at the time I was on them, they were still like basically, you know, uh, uh, they came out virtually weekly. I mean, your title came out monthly, but they wanted to, because they were interrelated and interlocking, and the next book, the book the next week needed to play off of what you did, you had to turn your your layouts around fast. You had to turn your pencils around fast. You had to turn everything around fast. So all the other people behind you, you know, on the schedule, would have your work to play off of. And so it became very um, <laughs> crazy. Um, it, it was you know you did not have time to think. You did not have time. In many cases, for me, I did not have time to do my best work. And it was, I did not find my particular, the book I was on, my particular position as Bensler, was not uh, uh, very uh, collaborative. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the writer showed me in many, many ways that he was the writer and I was the Bensler. Uh, and even with the urgings of the editor, you know, it became pretty obvious that that's, that's how the writer felt about it. And uh, so that's what I did. Uh, for for my stint there, I mean at, at one point with DC, which was sort of parallel to some of the stuff that happened at Marvel with creating things from the ground up. Um, as I I was working on Superman, there was talk about developing the electric blue suit into something, into spinning that off into its own character, and they contacted me about it. They gave me first crack at it, and we did. Uh, so many different ideas it was ridiculous how many pitches and ideas we gave them for male characters female characters whatever they all they settled on wanting a female character and so we did you know we took it female at one point uh defalco was negotiating with dc to come over and and, and write it with me and that end, those those talks ended up breaking down to the point that the project was almost abandoned. And I contacted Joey Kevin Leary, who was the editor at the time, and I said, "Now wait a minute. When when did this project become solely dependent on whether or not Defalco came over?" 
And he went, no, you're right, that's not fair. So uh, he says, you know, do you have somebody that could write it with you? And my brother had done some writing for Marvel. So I asked him if he'd be willing to script, and he was game. And uh, we were getting notes from DC, and, and at one point we were going to tie it into uh, Shazam, the wizard Shazam, and all this kind of stuff. Wow. At one point it was tied into Candor. It was just this ridiculous, creative, uh, you know, cluster F that we were getting these notes that contradicted each other and all this kind of stuff and finally we, we had this one one pitch in front of them and again they just decided they were going to abandon it and, and I said you know well I guess that was around the time that the, the talks broke down with the Falco so what I ended up having I ended up having a conversation with Joey Cavalieri where I just said Joey sit down with me tell me what you like and what you don't like and we'll see what we have left. So we went through supporting cast, we went through plot elements, all this kind of stuff, and we came up with what was finally published as those four issues uh, that ran in the different Superman titles of Strange Visitor, right? Oh, uh, yes. And, and Sal inked it, and my brother scripted it, and it was a Frankenstein's monster of all the different things that we had pitched, and we tried to make it work. And originally it was going to go right to series, of course, and it ended up being four issues. And uh, Mike Carlin and a lot of the higher-ups had already decided that it was a, a snake-bitten project and they didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, plus the fact it ran four issues weekly in all of the books between uh, teams. You know, uh, they, they had like a one, one big group of creators had left and another big group of creators were coming in, and we were the dead zone between the two. Huh. And so those issues, of course, didn't sell very well, and there was absolutely no interest. Uh, Mike Carlin had actually been turned off the project by the whole thing with Tom DeFalco for some reason. And, you know, so the, the project kind of became this, uh, you know, it was, as I said, snake bitten, and nobody wanted to deal with it. So it went away, and through that, <laughs> I mean, somehow in the course of all of that, I lost my job on Superman, too, because, you know, the idea was I was going to go from Superman to go over to do this new Strange Visitor title, and when Strange Visitor didn't happen, I, I was not welcome back on Superman either, so I went back to Marvel, and we did, uh, you know, we did MC2. You know, that kind of thing. So it, it was a weird time, and, you know, it was a real crazy, creative time. It was a real struggle. It was, uh, you know, it had, it had Sisyphus pushing the rock up the mountain had nothing on these few months. You know, it was, <laughs> it, it was really ridiculous. So, now, but uh, it gets that way sometimes. Mm -hmm. you know? When you went back to Marvel and you did uh, the first appearance of Spider Girl, how how did you end up like kind of doing that project with uh, with the leg legendary Tom DeFalco? <laughs> well done. Um, that was his idea from day one. Uh, it was something that he was approached to write. Uh, I, I I don't know if he had been approached at that point to be the regular writer on uh, on What If or not. I think he had been, and uh, there was even some talk about me joining him as the regular team on on What If briefly, but. Um, 
he had always had these ideas in the back of his head. So when he was approached about doing what ifs, that was certainly one of the ones he wanted to do. And uh, my schedule opened up, and I was available to work on it with him. And it was it was, the timing was just perfect because for us it was an opportunity to kind of you know let let's say Spider Man hasn't been published since we were on it, <laughs> and we get to you know we're going to do the pilot for. Uh, a reboot of the Spider-Man franchise, you know, that kind of thing. And we did think of it as a pilot, unlike the vast majority of what-if stories where you, you know, you took some story from Marvel history and said, okay, we're going to retell this story, but everybody dies. Usually, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and that kind of had become the, you know, the, the twist, which wasn't a twist anymore. Was, you know, that we'll do it but now people will die for real you know and i on the first run of what if i i did my share of those i did one where it was aunt may that died instead of uncle ben oh yeah i did one where uh, sue storm died in childbirth i think and you know i mean so it was even then when peter gillis was writing some pretty powerful stories they revolved around people dying who didn't die in the regular continuity you know this one we were more interested in doing a pilot and we gave her a supporting cast and we you know we just treated it like it was a pilot and it clicked um because i'm kind of obsessive i guess to some degree i did sketches of you know supporting characters and pete mary jane and all this and while we were developing everything and for some reason uh the editor-in-chief at the time and i think it was bob harris actually uh thought that this was a proposal for an ongoing when they were really just the sketches for the one shot you know that kind of thing and uh they they were talking about doing this thing to reach out to the the the, the big uh, chain stores and, and so it was all they all kind of fell into place uh more quickly than we ever would have anticipated and you know it was it was a lot of fun it was bob harris who gave us uh the son of juggernaut because you know it was only the the story was only set uh, 16 years in the future and we <laughs> we show a shot of the avengers and the juggernaut standing back there but it was supposed to be kane marco it was supposed to be the original juggernaut because tom always liked the idea of you know bad guys who become good guys you know that kind of thing uh at one point uh, in one of the sketches I did before we went to press, uh, it was not only was the juggernaut standing there, but there was there was somebody in the Carnage symbiote that was a member of the Avengers too. You know that kind of thing. We took that out, but uh, but when when Bob Harris saw it, he went and I really love this whole idea of the son of the juggernaut and everything. <laughs> and Tom, yeah, yeah, we do too. You know that kind of thing, and and he. He called me and he said, Ron, we're going to do, uh, one of the books we're going to do is The Son of the Juggernaut. I said, but that wasn't the, I know, isn't that great? <laughs> so, so it became J2, you know. Um, and I, again, my greatest joy is is creating things from the ground up. And I got to do that with, uh, with MC2 as well. Um, not just Spider Girl, but I designed J two. I just, you know, I, I, we came up with who the team of Avengers were going to be, and and uh, you know, I designed Stinger and, and Mainframe and, and, and all this kind of stuff. I have a, a friend from art school, 
known each other for years and years and years, obviously. And he has a terrific design sense. He actually did some work for Marvel in the uh, in the eighties and nineties. His name's Rich Yanizeski, and he has an incredible design sense. He knows comics inside and out. And anytime I need to design characters, I throw some names out to him. He'll give me, you know, five to ten pages of sketches, and and I'll take them with the stuff I've been coming up with, and and uh, paste things together and all that kind of stuff. But uh, the design for Dark Devil is almost, I think that's exclusively his. Oh wow! And the design for Ion Man in in, in A Next and stuff was was uh, exclusively his. You know, some of them are amalgams of, and and combinations of things he came up with, with things I came up with and stuff. But uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it, the, the, when A Next was wrapping up, I, the Tom let me put a little salute to him in the letter column because he had uh, contributed as much as he had. So uh, so there you go. And I usually you know I paid him for sketches either up front. And, all that kind of jazz. So I, I actually has uh, some creator. I think he has some creator equity in Dark Devil, but I'm not. I'm pretty sure that's true. Hmm. So anyway, uh, I do have so, a question yeah. about the MC2 universe. When I spoke to again the legendary Tom DeFalco uh, a few months ago, he said that originally you wanted to do a next over Spider Girl. Yes, well, what, because Thunderstrike. Is that the main reason? Yes. Okay. Uh, when, it, when it became when, when we discussed uh, because in, in the in the what if Spider Girl uh, Kevin Masterson is Thunderstrike is one of the Avengers that's standing there in that one scene and uh, so when when we found out it was going to get its own book I said are we going to we going to go with that team and he said well to some degree and and we had come up with the idea of Cassie and all this kind of stuff but once it was obvious and had firmed up the idea that that uh, Kevin Masterson was going to be the second generation Thunderstrike. Then my decision was made. I wanted to go where wherever Kevin was going to be, and it was uh, Tom and I both knew too that the really obvious because Bob Harris wanted me to do uh, Spider Girl because I had done the original and he wasn't sure whether it would have the same draw without the original team and blah blah blah. But. Uh, at that point, uh, Pat Olive and I shared studio space. I I knew he was available because Untold Tales of Spider-Man had wrapped up, and I mean, my God, it was you know, even even if I had a bigger ego than I do, <laughs> it would be obvious that Pat could kill on a book like that. You know what I mean? After after the run he had just done on Untold Tales of Spider-Man, we were incredibly confident that he could kill on Spider-Girl. So. I, you know, I went with my first love. I, I chased Thunderstrike, and my book dried up in two years. <laughs> two years, it was a year. It was just, I yeah, think it was just twelve book. issues. Yeah. yeah, twelve issues. And uh, and Pat kept cranking on Spider Girl, and I mean, God love him. He he just did beautiful work on that book. He and Al Williamson, and uh, I was filling guy every once in a while, and all that kind of stuff, and I was taking catch-as-catch-can freelance work wherever I could. And, and I, you know, this is the type of job where, you know, if if somebody's, you know, Pat finally ultimately what happened on Spider-Girl was that he was offered what at the time felt like it would be higher profile work. Uh, Bill Jemis, who was 
one of the higher ups at Marvel at the time who decided he was going to get all creative and stuff. <laughs> Everybody that runs Marvel always wants to be the next Stan Lee. Well, anybody that runs any company always wants to be the next Stan Lee. Dan DiDio wants to be the next Stan Lee. Yep. <laughs> uh, but uh, Bill Jemis really wanted to be the next Stan Lee, and he started writing and coming up with projects himself. And he was impressed, as anybody would be, with Pat Olive. I mean, he's a fantastic storyteller. He's a terrific illustrator. He's a machine as far as hitting deadlines. I mean, the guy's just amazing. He's, he's incredible. Um, I would recommend any publisher hearing this, you know, if you have a comic book project, call Pat Olive. He's the best. He's, well, right now he's working. He's doing uh, a barbed wire. Barbed wire for uh, Dark Horse. But, and doing a, a fantastic job of it. But... So anyway, Bill Jemis was offering him work. He, he did uh, The Call, and he did this weird uh, Submariner thing, Young Submariner, set back in the 20s and stuff like that. Oh, remember? yeah. And, I forgot about that completely. Yeah, he worked on that. And, and all of it was, you know, we were all hoping that what it would do was that it would raise Pat's visibility because, you know, Spider-Girl was, a, was Spider-Girl. You know, it was... It was a, a one-off imprint. It was kind of in a corner of the Marvel Universe. And, and you know, we were all kind of hoping that if he followed this, you know, this trajectory of being noticed by the Marvel higher-ups, that maybe he'd actually end up on, like, he sh- why Pat was never on a Spider-Man title blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he did some online stuff when, when they first started doing online Spider-Man stories, original online Spider-Man stories. He was hired to do some of those. But the idea that Pat was never on a regular Spider-Man book is just ludicrous on the face of it. And we were kind of hoping that's where it was going to go. And Spider-Girl was in one of its phases of being canceled. So Pat took the work with Bill Jemmons. And then the book was uncanceled. But Pat was already committed to the the Gemma stuff. He was already working on the Gemma stuff. And surprising to me, because I I never assumed they would do it, they actually called me and asked me if I was interested in doing Spider-Girl. And I went, what, are you kidding me? Sure. So at the time, it was only going to be to wrap it up. It was only basically, I was just going to be the one that was going to steer the boat into the dock, you know, that kind of thing, and and hook it up. But um, we got uncanceled again. And uh, we went on for another several years past that. And, you know, and then Pat's work with Gemma's dried up. And it's one of those things where, you know, we've been on both sides of it. You're all, you always just smile and you're happy for your fellow freelancer that he's got work. You know, that's the way it works. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it, that's just kind of the way it works. And I'm happy it does work that way. I mean, there's never been any hard feelings between Pat and I that I'm aware of. So. You know, other than I talk too much. Uh, <laughs> when, when we shared studio space, I'm sure Pat suffered through that a little too much. But other than that, I think we we, we still have some mutual respect surviving there. Um, when it, just uh, going back to A next for a second, um, I remember like I was the I guess the right age group for that when that came out because I was I think maybe 14 or 15 years old when that started. Okay. So I remember just absolutely loving A Next. I was always sad that it ended so early. Uh, but like that, I mean, it was interesting hearing you talk about, you know, uh, Eric Masterson because Kevin Masterson was my Masterson. 
Yeah. You know, that was the one I kind of, you know, kind of, I got to experience him through A-Next and through eventually Spider-Girl as well. And I always loved that character. Um, So I just wanted to thank you for that character. I mean, it's funny that I've gone back and really enjoyed Eric's stuff, but it was really Kevin that got me in. Well, that's great. You know, I loved working on A-Next because Tom was working, you know, was writing J2 and Spider-Girl as well. And early on, he was even editing the, the, the three titles. Uh, ultimately, we were we he started collaborating with other in-office editors, but uh, for the the most of that run, it was just again a, just a wonderfully creative time uh, creating that universe, and uh, I, I'm very fond of those characters um, to this day, and I'm very proud of those books. I think they, you know, they're the closest I've ever come to. Uh, you know, recreating the dynamic and and the feel of you know Roy Thomas's and John Buscema's Avengers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, just that you know the, the the grandeur and the tongue and cheekness and the, and, and everything. I just uh, loved the way those characters interacted and uh, and have a great fondness for them. Uh, and and was I was very involved in the plotting and, and creating new characters and stuff. And Tom is very very giving that way. And, and that can't help but make it more fun for the, for the people that are working on it, you know. So uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Did you, by any chance, ever read the, I don't even remember when it came out now, it's probably been 10 years now, the uh, Thunderstrike miniseries? Uh, I, I think I did. You know, my memory is, is worse than it should be. I think that came out around 2007 or 2008. Um, I'm pretty sure I read it because I remember being really excited about it because they're actually going to have a kind of a modern version of that character and not in the MC2 universe. So I'm I'm pretty sure I read it. Okay. It's embarrassing that I don't remember it. I guess it's, uh, it's my I, I will blame it on the fact that I have a disability that I've had since 2007 that has actually made my memory worse. So oh. I'm, I'm not just making it up, but uh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's o- that's okay. I just I mean, if there's things you got to, re- if you things that you need to forget to remember more important things, then <laughs> please don't feel guilty about it. It's interesting for me. Everything pre 2007, especially with like anything in my life, I had an extremely good sharp recall on. But everything after that is kind of a little bit more of a, a watercolor. <laughs> It just, okay. it just kind of blends into things, so don't take it too uh, harshly that I don't remember that particular book. I remember being really excited about it, though. I don't, I don't take it personally at all. Believe me, I, there are those of us who work in comics, uh, you know, have to be the ones who recognize that there's a lot of things in this life that are so much more important <laughs> than comics. But it was a, it was a, an odd uh, opportunity because at one point we were wrapping up Spider Girl, and. Tom DeFalco sent uh, an email, a kind of a broadcast email to Marvel and said, you know, uh, it's been a pleasure. You know, we're packing our bags. Does anybody have anything that they might want to see Ron Friends and I do uh, for Marvel? And the, I believe he was the direct, the, the VP in charge of direct sales or something. I'm desperately trying to remember the gentleman's name and I can't. But he sent uh, Tom an email and said, I don't know about anybody else, I'd love to see a Thunderstrike miniseries. Hmm. 
And I, I, you know, my reaction to Tom was, are you shitting me? And he went, no, that's what the guy said. And, and the next time Tom went into the office, you know, he and I started kicking ideas around like, well, if we really did something like this, what would you want to do? And blah, blah, blah. And he went into the office at one point to have lunch with somebody, and he found out it was already on the schedule. Oh, wow. And we're like, holy shit. So uh, it was an amazing, weird thing. And we didn't want to bring Eric back because, you know, Tom and I have both lived long enough lives that we know that death doesn't work like that. (laughs) So we really didn't. You know, didn't feel like that would uh, work for us. So we decided to go with a 616 Kevin and basically decided that anywhere we turned right with the MC2 Kevin, we were going to turn left with the 616 Kevin. Hmm. Okay. Um, he would be younger, uh, given Marvel the way Marvel time passes. He would be, uh, you know, he wouldn't be as stable and straight arrow. His relationship with his family wouldn't be as strong. You know, all the all the things that we decided uh, at one point about MC2 Kevin, we went the other direction with with 616 Kevin, and I I thought it was an enjoyable miniseries. I I would have loved to have had the opportunity to do more. I mean, as with many new things these days at Marvel, when you try something new like that, it didn't catch an audience. It didn't sell well enough to to uh, to rate doing more of it. Uh, there was some talk about using Kevin. They used him in some backups during um, what was it? There was one of the big series that they they, was, they did a. I think he was they, in uh, Fear Itself. One of the one of the tie-ins. Fear Itself, yeah, it was like the Homefront or something like that. Yeah, and, and he had teamed up with uh, Amadeus Cho and uh, uh, the Aranya Spider Girl and bunch of other characters uh x-23 and all that kind of stuff and uh, so there you know he did get he did appear other places apparently he was seen getting off a shuttle in uh avengers academy or something like that i do know? remember that <laughs> but they but I, I never saw that shot to tell you the truth but i heard about it from different people and uh you know but but again it was it was fun because actually the one concept that I wanted to do in MC2 that we never got around to that we used in that was uh, the Valkyrie being sent down to be his handler. Hmm. Uh, we didn't have the idea back on MC2 to, to name her Grunhilda after Mark, after Mark Grunwald, but we did. I, I did do sketches at one point of a of a Valkyrie that was going to be, you know, given to Kevin basically as a as a handler and a trainer. And so we used that idea uh, for uh, for the six one six, and you know overall I think it's a it's a fairly strong miniseries if you enjoy the stuff that Tom and I do because the stuff Tom and I do is not um, it's not structured the way the current stuff is it's not as dark as the current stuff is it's not as quote unquote adult as the the stuff is we we're still very concerned with doing something that could be you know uh, read by readers of all ages and enjoyed and all that kind of jazz and uh the reviews at the time were actually kind of funny because it was like who is this for who is this for it's not you know it's it's not uh fear itself and it's not it's everybody was just screaming and yelling about how it wasn't fish nor fowl it didn't seem to be a kitty book and yet it didn't seem to be you know what what they were used to currently at marvel so uh the internet 
where anybody with a keyboard can express an opinion. Yep. But, uh, so we, we took our bruises on that one, but I, you know, it was it was fun. It was it, we were at the same time we were wrapping that up. We were hired by DC to do the Superman Beyond one shot, which was again that was supposed to turn into a regular gig doing the online uh, Superman Beyond series. But there was a, in fact, apparently we were Dan DiDio's choice to do it. But there was a breakdown in communication between DC East Coast and DC West Coast. Hmm. And the West Coast editor hired a completely different team to do it. And, you know, so DiDio was put in the position of having to apologize to DeVoco because that's not what he intended, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I guess that's the problem that wouldn't happen now that they've moved. <laughs> Now that they're all in one place, I'd like to think it wouldn't happen. But I well, mean, that's I guess true. It's yeah, is it something that could happen between, you know, left Twix and right Twix? I have no idea. So, uh, so that was disappointing because we had some. I, I thought we had some kick-ass ideas for that as well, and there was some real editorial confusion there because uh, I believe it was Paul Levitz did the annual, the Superman Batman annual, that introduced. Uh, Superman Beyond and picked up from where he was on the cartoon that he had been under uh, Starro's influence for a, a fairly long period of time and at the end of that he leaves Earth and, and goes off into space and all this kind of stuff and, and says goodbye to Terry McGinnis and says you know uh, that's I'm going out there and our one mandate was to bring it back to Earth and because Tom and I are the creatures we are and because of my understanding of who Superman is I figured he'd be back <laughs> you know I mean because we're really not that far from at, at that point we really weren't that far from the John Byrne Superman who has no real tangible memories of Krypton or outer space or anything he was raised in Kansas He's a he's, he was a Smallville kid right so that was kind of our take on, on the character. Yes, he's Superman, but, you know, at his core, he's Clark Kent from Smallville, Kansas. And it was never intended to be anything much more than a walkabout. And we start the issue with him, you know, helping people as he is going to be wont to do no matter where he is and realizing that uh, maybe it's time to head on back. And he does and reestablishes himself back on Earth and, you know, we show older Jimmy Olsen, who's offering him a job, and he interacted with old Bruce Wayne, which I thought was a really nice scene and all that kind of stuff. But our whole mandate was to bring him back and set him up on Earth so we could do continued stories. Hmm. And we were planning on, you know, bringing in a second generation and all this kind of stuff uh, in our own way. But then when we didn't get that gig and the stories started appearing in print that they were running on uh, online, they went right back to this uh, depressive he wanders around his fortress you know hating his life and everything vibe that was kind of in the that was in the Paul Levitt story that wasn't what we were doing you know so they even collected all of it in a, in a trade paperback and, and our one shot seems like an incredible 
brain fart in the midst of all of this depression because in the midst of all this depression he comes back and he's going to take a job with Jimmy Olsen and be Clark Kent and all this kind of stuff and then they start this next series where he's all depressed in the fortress again and he has Batman create a completely new identity for him and he becomes a fireman okay and it was just you know you, you can think whatever you want I mean I'm sure there are a lot of fans of, of what they did on the, the online series but editorially it was this weird blip you know where what the hell happened there you know I mean it, it was a complete change in direction that then completely changed right back again uh, because everybody wants to be depressed I guess I don't know yeah I've never quite understood the uh, the overwhelming need for everything to be more serious well, serious is one thing. Depressing is something else again. That's true, like yeah. I said, like I said, we don't take ourselves too seriously. We do take the material seriously. But to be, our, you know, our ongoing belief is that if you want to get depressed, watch 6 o'clock news. <laughs> I, I, comics should be about what, you know, the, the best of the human condition. Uh, you know, Stan Lee's mandate was always about telling stories about what we can be at our best and the heroes were a metaphor for that but it was it was about what we should be willing to expect from ourselves and you know what humanity and humanism really is i mean that's what stan talked about all the time in those in those books is that we're all brothers on spaceship earth and and you know we need to be kind to each other. We, they, those, those stories, if nothing else, uh, showed if, if they didn't preach, but they showed an example of tolerance and brotherhood that was the core of what these characters are supposed to all be about. You know, plus the fact if you take them as the new mythology or the new American tall tales, why do we want? I, I personally don't understand why we want characters with feet of clay who are backstabbing each other and traying each other and making the tough decisions and uh, to kill and all this kind of stuff because there's nothing about that that, that seems like an enjoyable pastime to me. Hmm. And if nothing else, shouldn't comics be an enjoyable pastime? You, know? you would think so. What's interesting is uh, I'm thinking about your MC2 universe and that it's interesting that it's one of the only futures in comics I can think of that is optimistic. Thank you. And like, I'm very proud of that. See, I grew up on the original Star Trek. And the one thing that was kind of our mission statement uh, when we were doing the original press for MC2 and everything was the original, you know, the Marvel 616 universe, the heroes of the Marvel 616 universe, actually did what they set out to do. Even if by accident, they actually made the world a better place to live in. And because of that, there's this second generation of kids who are finding themselves with powers and with abilities that are following their example. And, you know, not every character. We still we always have the people that are going to get those powers and and be self-serving. We call them the supervillains. But, you know, in, in these cases, it was about this second generation of, of kids who were inspired because things didn't go bad. I mean, you know, for a while there in the 90s, every story started with, and then the wheels came off the cart. You know, that kind of thing. It was always like that one act on Behind the Music. There was 
<laughs> it was always like, things couldn't get any better. And then, after the commercial, we'll see the drug abuse and we'll see the, you know, the, the lawsuits and we'll see the wheels come off the cart. And that became what everybody wanted to see with the superheroes. We went from idealizing them in the 50s to, you know, humanizing them in the 60s to tearing them down as if they're Kardashians in in the, the 90s and, and now, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, that's what I love about the Marvel movies now is that we're still allowed to look up to these characters. I mean, Chris Evans is, is Steve Rogers. is just like this guy you want to hang out with. Mm-hmm. Chris, you know, Chris Evans, uh, or, or Chris Hemsworth is Thor, is somebody you, you really would, you'd love to have a beer with that guy. He looks like he'd be a lot of fun, you know? And, and you can admire them. And that's always what Stan was shooting for. I don't know why we... Uh, listen, I, I completely acknowledge the fact that I grew up on the comics of the 60s and 70s. I started working in the 80s. Um, I think everybody tends to love the comics that they grew up on. That's what informs their idea of what a good comic book is. The people that discover comics later, you know, there are people who think Rob Liefeld is is their Jack Kirby. You know, there, there just is. That's the way it works. And there are, you know, people who, who think the stuff now is the absolute pinnacle of how comics should be produced. And anything that's not that is trash. Do I agree with that? Of course not. Do I acknowledge that I'm as much a creature of... I grew up on the comics that I love and those are the comics that I still try to produce absolutely absolutely and I'm not going to apologize for it I love it you know I mean I, <laughs> I still to this day if I could just produce one comic that was as, as uh, that moves somebody as much as those comics used to move me and entertain me then I've done my job and you know I've had some very very kind fans who have suggested that has been the case that it has not all been in vain that's it's always wonderful to hear it's always very flattering um you know have i satisfied myself yet no i'm still it's still an ongoing mission of mine to create that perfect comic that you know, like one of Sal Buscema's Avengers or one of John's Avengers or, or one of Ramita's Spider-Man's or, you know, something like that. And, uh, you know, that I hope I I never get overly satisfied with myself because that's when your work starts to suffer, I think. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question about A-Next because it, um, it is a favorite of mine and it, I feel like overall it's probably something that doesn't get off, asked as much. You're absolutely right about that, so please, anyway. <laughs> So what you're saying is that the, uh, the the rest of the podcast will be the A next podcast. If you want to make it that, I'll be happy <laughs> to answer any questions you have. You know? um, when uh, of the original, I guess, kind of twelve issues of A next, you created a lot of characters for that book. Who were kind of your favorite desi- visual designs? I was always happy with Stinger um, because I, I did, you know, as as I was creating her, we would Google things and all that kind of stuff. I think I had a computer at that point. I was really late getting a computer, but uh, and we found out that there were there were uh, like a couple of one-off uh, other stories and alternate realities and stuff where the name had been used. But uh, 
since DeFalco had handled uh, Scott and Cassie in Fantastic Four, if you remember. Mm-hmm. In his run on Fantastic Four, he had Scott become a, an associate of, of the Fantastic Four, and Cassie was uh, with Scott, and Cassie had actually met Christoph Bernard, and, and he was handling them as younger children. So it was a natural extension to, uh, you know, to kind of use Cassie as a, as a grown character. And I, I fell in love with her. I had a huge crush on her uh, as a character because she was the, you know, one of the cornerstones of the group. And uh, so I, I was happy with, I was really happy with that design. Uh, Thunderstrike was something that was hanging on my wall that I, I designed. I went through a whole bunch of different color schemes and a whole bunch of different designs, just for myself. That was part of my mourning period after, after uh, Thunderstrike, to create. Kevin as Thunderstrike and I had him up on my wall in front of my desk and so when the time came to just plug somebody in for that uh, Spider-Girl What If I had the sketch right in front of me and I said uh, how do you feel about me just plugging him in Tom and he went oh that's great that's fine so uh, you know the idea that we got to explore him a little bit more and his relationship with uh, with this, the supporting cast and everything I, I you know wow I don't know. I stand by all the designs, to tell you the truth. I mean, uh, they're all my—they're all my kids to one degree or another. Um, are you heading towards asking about the Ant-Man movie? Um, I wasn't specifically, but let's, we can—we can go there. Uh, because that was in one of the, in uh, the the issues leading up to the uh, end of the the series. Uh, we showed a young woman who looked suspiciously like Janet Van Dyne. Um, who turned out to be the daughter of, of Henry Pym and Janet and uh, was named Hope. And she had a twin brother named Henry Jr. And in our stories, was she, the, was big the red, man? she was the Red Queen and he was Big Man, yeah. And they attacked the Avengers with a, a team of mercenaries they put together called the Revengers uh, because Hank Pym died on the Avengers' last mission and as is wont to happen dramatically stated in comics Janet then died of a broken heart (laughs) Uh, but even at her worst she never blamed the Avengers but uh, the Red Queen became a staple in the MC2 universe Tom used her in an American Dream miniseries Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff but I guess when they were putting together the Ant-Man movie and they decided to go the two generations thing with Hank Pym and Scott Lang being two separate generations uh, they decided that they were going to give Hank Pym a daughter and somebody Googled it and went, uh, yeah, in the comic book, she's got a daughter named Hope. And uh, so they used, they used the name. And they, often, they, they also seemed to give her uh, a pretty obviously a Janet Van Dyne haircut and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And uh, so we got a screen credit on, on, uh, on Ant-Man and, uh, and a, a very generous check uh, for them using Hope Pym. Which in their movie it was Hope Van Dyne anyway, but uh, so that was kind of kind of interesting and weird and uh, fun and, and and very uh, very kind of them. They like to they like to keep track of that kind of stuff, you know, and uh, and keep everybody happy. You know, I, I laughingly call it my "Please don't sue us" check. You know, that kind of <laughs> but uh, so that was neat. That was neat. So that's something that came out of A next to you know. What um, I've always liked the design for American Dream. 
Thank well, you. What was kind of your inspiration? Obviously, I mean, Captain America's costume is a huge part of it, but what kind of went into adapting to the design for a female form? Um, yeah, I, I mean, that, that was an ongoing process because actually the design that I used in uh, some Spider-Girls, some later Spider-Girl stories and, and or the design I'm using in the, uh, the current uh, Spider-Island stories uh, is is slightly adapted and I think works even better with the female form but that that character went through a lot of development uh, that nobody ever saw uh, you know we, we came up with the idea of wanting to to do a second generation cap from the very beginning we, we were thinking female um, we did sketches of a, of a black girl um, and thinking that maybe she'd be related to Sam Wilson or something like that, you know. Um, quite frankly, the, one of the problems we had with the character being African-American was, <laughs> and this sounds ridiculous, I know, but the blue of the costume next to the brown skin flattened out. Hmm. It, didn't, it, it didn't read well. And it was, you know, I, I, that's, I'm sure that's a stupid reason to, to pick one direction over another, but what we ended up doing that is that, it, that I came up with the idea of having her be related to Sharon Carter. So visually, when we decided to make her related to Sharon Carter, the idea of making her the all-American blonde and all that kind of stuff became more evident. And that was what we ended up going with. Um, actually, Bob Harris even called us on it and said, you know, couldn't we make her, you know, ethnic? And, and I... I told her, I, I said, I can show you the sketches. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know whether he ended up agreeing with us or not, or just accepting what we were doing. But, uh, you know, that was, that's kind of what ended up happening. And, uh, and but, but she, again, she went through a lot of development from uh, looking more like Steve's Nomad costume, uh, really? which was an idea, which was an idea that Tom used when he told her origin that when she was being trained by Hawkeye that that was his original pitch that she become nomad um, we had names like Golden Girl we, which was you know from the 40s we had names like uh, All American and uh, uh, all this kind of stuff we were just playing with all kinds of different ideas and uh, it was I, I don't know where I finally came up with American Dream but uh, I thought it worked and I pitched it to Tom and he liked it and at that point, we just embraced the, the Captain America motif and just kind of made it a female version of Cap's costume, and she had the discs. And then uh, it was a little interesting thing. If you, Not that anybody's going to do it, and it may only be interesting to me. But if you look at the issue uh, of A-Next, where American Dream gets a shield of her own, yeah, they are in an alternate reality, okay? I remember that. They're in an alternate reality where our Avengers went there to battle a, a veritable army of super people and barely survived. But Captain, our Captain America stayed behind because their Captain America had been killed during World War II by a more successful Red Skull. Okay? Um, and in their reality the Red Skull wasn't trapped in that cave with the nerve gas to be found by AIM all those years later he was able to work behind the scenes and he assassinated Hitler and he took control of the Third Reich and he conquered the world and Victor Von Doom became his protege 
So that was the world we were working with. And Victor Von Doom still had that world's Captain America's shield in a display case that he took around with him everywhere. Okay. And my idea, and if you look at the visuals of the story, if you look at what hand the shield is in for different people, my original idea was that Cap gives American Dream his shield and he takes up the shield of the alternate Cap because he's going to stay on that world and help them finish their fight for freedom. Okay? Okay. Tom wasn't crazy about that idea. Tom liked the idea of Cap keeping his own damn shield. <laughs> and so the dialogue has has Cap saying, keep this Cap's shield. Keep the alternate Cap's shield. I'm sure he'd want you to have it. You know, that kind of thing. But unfortunately, in the... Well, unfortunately, I mean, because it, it, it shows that we weren't on the same page. The If you really look closely at the art, Cap is keeping the other Cap shield and throwing his shield to American Dream. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and nobody, nobody has actually ever caught that. And, uh, you know, uh, now I'm just giving it away because it's all these years later and who cares anymore. But uh, that was one of those few times that Tom and I weren't, uh, weren't on the same page. What can I tell you? Um, another Anex character question. What was behind, I guess, the idea to make mainframe black and gold? Uh, you mean aside from the fact that I'm from Pittsburgh? Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've never been a huge sports fan, but I mean, that certainly played a role. Um, that was one of those deals, though, where I called in that friend of mine, Rich Anizeski, and he just gave me dozens and dozens and dozens of ideas to play with. And uh, so I cobbled together the, the helmet and the shape of the helmet and the armor. Uh, it, was a, it was a combination of, of all the design elements that, that Rich handed me. And uh, I loved the original War Machine armor. Okay. I had, got, I had gotten to draw it one time in Thunderstrike and really got a kick out of that armor and everything. So there's a lot of similarity in the bulk the, you know, the, the weight of the upper body. There's a lot of similarity uh, between mainframe and the original uh, mainframe, or I'm sorry, uh, war machine armor. And, yeah, but the color scheme kind of came from, uh, you know, from being uh, being from the city of the Steelers and the Pirates, you know, were black and gold. <laughs> so that had a lot to do with it. And it was really a kick when, you know, Iron Man adopted that color scheme and everything too. But, uh, but see, that's another weird one. Uh, there's, there's this one um, young fellow who's a fan of, uh, of MC2 from, I believe he's from Australia, and he does a, uh, a blog called uh, A Comic Odyssey, and he keeps track of, 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 of MC2-related things. And apparently on Hulk and the Agents of Smash, yeah, they've done a couple of episodes where Tony Stark had a training program called Mainframe. Oh, really? that decided to build itself a body and go explore the world and the body was black and gold and he's mainframe and uh i wouldn't have known about it but for this uh for this young gentleman who uh, who does this blog but it uh, i watched the episode on um, on youtube and it's uh you know so these some of these mc2 ideas are still turning up you know uh, uh, in uh in different venues and stuff so it's like, like, I, like I said at the beginning, it's very gratifying when that happens, when these ideas live past your involvement with them and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, most recently we were asked to do 
a, a ten-page installment and four five-page installments uh, for an MC2 island on Doom World. It was part of the Secret Wars thing. And initially, we were told it was supposed to be like a celebration of MC2. So we came up with a story that involved as many MC2 heroes as possible. But then it was made very clear to us that it was they wanted it to be Spider Girl centric. They wanted it to be May Day centric. Okay. So uh, so we adapted it slightly, but uh, you know we really just kind of came up with an excuse for everybody to get a curtain call, you know that kind of thing. And on, I went on the Spider Girl message board and asked everybody for their favorite characters. Have you been following? Uh, Secret Wars, Adam? Yes, and I've actually I've really been enjoying your story. Although my own my one question about that was, uh, how do you? I don't know what it is about the the way Mayday looks in this. I guess the Spider Man costume now that she's Spider Woman. Yes. It's just something about the colors. I don't I don't know. It's just this weird effect that seems to seems to be on the character when she's moving, and I, I can't put my finger on it. But it just doesn't. Something looks off. Well, it's been a little weird. Just uh, I was a little surprised when I saw the books because I, I don't understand the entire ins and outs of the printing process at this point. But what I've been noticing is that the colors are very, very dense and that they seem to be affecting the black line as well. The black line seems to be graying out or blurring a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I so I don't completely understand it myself. They the, the pages always look much better on my computer monitor when... They're sending me, you know, color pages to, to give color notes on costumes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I, I don't really understand what's happening between the uh, the disc that the colors are on and the printing process, to tell you the God's honest truth. But I, I don't disagree that there is some some weirdness going on. And there, and there obviously, once we went to computers, nobody was using uh, the color guide, the, the color codes anymore. So the Spider-Man costume is never a consistent blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's never it's never the back in the day when we were using those you know R two B three codes <laughs> for four color printing. There was a consistent green for the Hulk. There was a consistent blue for Captain America. A different consistent blue for Spider-Man. A consistent red for the characters and stuff. Uh, once we got into computers, you know, all the colors are just eyeing it. You know, so the Hulk is never a consistent green anymore, and and colors are can be all over the place, um, and uh, there's just so many characters to keep track of. It's crazy, but um, you know, so yeah, we've been getting a lot of pushback from uh, from the, even the loyal Mayday fans that they don't like the way she looks in the Spider-Man costume, and I don't completely disagree. I, the Spider-Man costume, the way it, the belt cuts across the waist, and the, the traditional boot line and all that kind of stuff, it, it doesn't work really well for for a female figure, and it certainly doesn't work well for a figure that was using the Ben Riley outfit from the very beginning, the Ben Riley outfit. Sal Buscema told me that when they first introduced the Ben Riley design, his first reaction was it looked very feminine to him. It looked like something that would work really well on a feminine figure, and boy, was he right. That's that's the only reason that I used it because Tom's original conception for Spider Girl was that she wore Pete's costume, and I was never crazy about that idea. So I I really liked Ben Riley's design. So the first few sketches I did, I did her in the Ben Riley outfit, and Tom liked it. 
Hmm. Tom had to admit that it, it looked good on her, you know. And the way the spider was designed, it, w- it was almost like it was designed to have breasts fitting in there somewhere. You know what I mean? <laughs> I never thought of it, but you're right. It, it yeah. does seem to fit a lot better. <laughs> it does. It, it it really, really works for the for, for the female figure. And I, uh, when we relaunched as Amazing Spider-Man, I tried to do a f- even a few more things that I thought helped enhance uh, it working on the female figure. But... Uh, yeah, there, that, to me, there's there's no question that it works better. Um, so our fans are being very patient, and uh, I don't know whether we're going to get a chance to do any more Spider Girl material after this at all. But you know, we'll see where it goes. And I, I didn't think we'd be doing this Spider Girl material. So, well, I guess it's technically Spider Woman, right? It, it's yeah. I, 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 <laughs> my apologies to Nick Lowe and Dan Slott. Yes, I should have been saying Spider Woman. <laughs> It, it is it is an interesting uh, I mean how is it coming back to the character when she's gone through changes that have not been of your and Tom's kind of creation it's very strange it's because um, it's like your child right as you said yeah, like you, yeah. and I said in a print article at one point it's like somebody has shifted the gravity <laughs> because things that that should be familiar don't feel right um and, you know, in the original 10-pager we did during uh, Spider-Verse, we kind of played devil's, devil's advocate and said, well, you know, if we're acknowledging that there's all these multiple realities and everything, who says this is our May Day? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, on this story, we decided not to be as impish, and, and uh, we tried to embrace the similarities as much as possible, and, and we show Cafe Indigo, and we show her friends at school and all that kind of stuff, however briefly. Um, so we're, we're trying to embrace it and, uh, and, and walk the straight and narrow as much as possible. Our, our real personal mandate on this story was to deal with May Day's grief and, and the seismic shift that losing a father would be to a 16-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. Um, because, unfortunately, these days when you do these big epics like Spider-Verse, there, you know, and that you're not the lead character. Your your story arc, your character arc, tends to be pretty perfunctory. You know, she's really mad and wants to kill Demos. She has an opportunity to do that, decides not to, and Dad would be proud. And the end. You know, that kind of thing. Um, if you've ever been unfortunate enough to lose a loved one, that's not how it works. No. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> And especially for a 16-year-old girl. Uh, so we welcomed the opportunity to investigate uh, May's inner monologue with some of this stuff. And I'm hoping that by the time all the chapters come out, unfortunately, you know, we're being affected by the schedule of the, 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 the main title, which has been problematic. Mm-hmm. So I don't know when all five issues are finally or all six issues are finally going to be out, but uh, five issues. But when they are, hopefully it will uh, all fit together as a, as a decent uh, story with some action and, as Tom would say, angst and, <laughs> some, uh, and, and a point. Um, and I think the fans will be happy with the way it, uh, it wraps up, but uh, only the fans will be able to tell us that. Uh, but it, it's you know it was it was wonderful dealing with the character again. If we had other opportunities, I'm sure we'd embrace them. Uh, but uh, you know we'll just have to wait and see where it goes. 
I mean, we were having some fun with the whole Spider Girl, Spider Woman thing because, you know, okay, you you decide you're going to change your name. Um, do you what? Go on a Facebook page and say Spider Girl is not Spider Woman? Do you take billboard space in Times Square? Do you pass out cards? You know, I mean, once you're established in the public eye as Spider Girl. How bumpy of a road is it to, you know, do you have the Avengers put out a press release? You know, uh, so we're kind of having fun with the fact that, you know, it's not, you don't just decide you're Spider-Woman and somehow everybody magically knows that, you know what I mean? So, uh, and if that's taken in any way as a, as a nod to the fans that aren't happy with the name change, then so be it, you know? <laughs> Um, a question about uh, getting back to, to uh, Thunderstrike 2, um, or Kevin, let's just call him Kevin. Uh, let's call him Kev. What was the, what was, I guess, how did you guys decide originally to not have him actually wield a mace? Uh, to separate him a little bit from Thor, you know, to, uh, to, to try to, as much as possible, remove that uh, specter. Uh, that that negative image of him just being a, a second-rate Thor, and uh, you know, I, the idea, the origin that we came up with, made it a little easier to do that. And uh, you know, it, it actually was one of my favorite lines in the series is when he meets uh, his alternate reality father, who is a stormtrooper. Oh yeah, and they're fighting. And Kevin at one point says the line, you may wield Thunderstrike, but I am Thunderstrike. And I thought that was a really cool line. <laughs> so, uh, so, yes, he's imbued with the powers of the mace instead of wielding the mace. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just thought it made him a little bit more his own character and all that kind of stuff, you know. No, I guess when you guys brought him into the 616, I guess the... He actually obviously has a mace now. I guess it's going along with what you said before, trying to make him kind of the opposite of the MC2 Thunderstrike. Exactly. And and the idea that uh, we we played with a lot of different ideas, man. I can't even tell you how many different sketches I did of different treatments of how we could approach this character. And um, what we finally decided on was him kind of keeping his own build and being you know, a five ten character in a six foot five world, you know, and and that the mace would be proportionally bigger for him, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I really ended up liking that visual a lot. Um, you know, we we had a little bit of fun getting there with him first looking like his dad and then and then looking kinda of like a video game avatar, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Boy boy did nobody have a sense of humor about that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what kills me, though, because it's, you know, it's like I said, we'll always take the character seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. But there have been indications in my career, uh, when we were on Thor, Eric, when Eric was Thor for, for those couple of years, we did a cover called, uh, that had him holding a big gun that was during the 90s, and it said, no more Mr. Nice God. <laughs> and boy, did the fans have no sense of humor about that at all. I mean, we did a thunder. We did a thunderstrike cover. The guest starred Spider Man, and just as a gag, we put from the pages of Venom, the Amazing Spider Man, because <laughs> Venom was so popular at the time, and nobody had a sense of humor about it. It was amazing how deadly serious they take this stuff, 
and we're, we're, we're just kidding, guys, come on. And it was the same thing with, you know, if, if you establish that they, the mace is magic and you can basically look like anything you want to look like, we decided to take this little left turn where he becomes this over-the-top video game avatar type of character, you know, like the God of War or something like that from uh, from that one video game. And it was, it was meant to be over-the-top and kind of 90s and goofy. And wow, did we get fried in the reviews and everything for that. And it's like, gosh, people... Remember when comics used to be fun? <laughs> Remember when you, you know, you didn't get into fights with your friends over comics because they were fun? Yikes. <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't realize that it stirred such a reaction. Yeah, oh, you want to, you want to piss people off, try to have fun with these characters sometime. Um, I guess we'll we'll wrap up. Um, it's it's funny. I'm I'm looking at your. You've had an amazing career in comics, and so much of the more obvious stuff to, to, to talk to you about, I haven't talked to you about at all. Uh, so I feel like at some point I'll have to bring you back for I guess the uh, the greatest hits uh, stuff. <laughs> whenever, whenever you're uh, uh, ready to do that, I'll, I'll be more than happy to meet with you, Adam. It's been a lot of fun. I mean, right now, if I could throw in a quick plug. There are these books available now on Comixology called Sitcomics. Comics you read. They're TV you read. And they're being done by a guy out of California named Darren Henry. And they have a there's a Facebook page. It's uh, Sitcomics, uh, S-I-T-C-O-M-I-C-S, one word, uh, on Facebook. And uh, there's a, a book called The Blue Baron that Sal Buscema and I worked on and uh, a book called Super Suckers are the two titles that are out now but it's going to be there's going to be a series of other titles and I helped with the design of a lot of the superhero characters and uh, penciled Blue Baron number one and uh, it's only available in print copies in central PA as a test marketing type thing but it is available on Comixology and uh, if your uh, listeners would be interested in checking it out, it's uh, this gentleman was very influenced by you know '70s Bronze Age comics, and uh, it again is a book that's you know uh, doesn't take itself too seriously, but it is a, a straight treatment of superheroes, a new universe of superheroes that uh, your listeners might get a kick out of. Cool, absolutely. Now, can I ask you some quick questions? Sure. This is part. This is part of the wrap up. We'll try and go rapid fire because I uh, listeners I, stuff. I have some listener questions. Yeah, because I asked all of my a next questions, <laughs> which were obviously the most important and had been festering for over fifteen years. Well, I hope I answered them to your satisfaction. No, absolutely. Um, so we have a question from Optimus eighty one. He wanted to know what what it was like to be one of the first artists to draw Spider Man with a completely different costume. How cautious were you when you started, and what was your approach? Uh, it was um, actually a huge disappointment because, as I said early in the interview, <laughs> I wanted to do Spider-Man since I was eight, and when I got there, he had a different suit. Uh, <laughs> when I was originally sent to sketch, I've told this story a couple of times, when I was originally sent to sketch, I didn't read the plot yet, and I thought this was a new villain. And uh, there were drawings by uh, Mike Zeck. There were Xeroxes of drawings by Mike Zeck of the black costume. And I went, so we got this new villain coming up? And they said, no, that's Spider-Man's new costume. And I went, what? 
and it was explained to me, and I'm like, holy mackerel, you know? Wow. Anyway, so you you know you you dream for 20 years of drawing Spider-Man, and when you get there, he's he's wearing a new suit. Um, I was completely inspired by uh, Rick Leonardi because Rick Leonardi was brought in to pencil uh, two fill-ins after my first two fill-ins because uh, I was only hired to do the, the initially I was only hired to do the book for like six months and then Ramita Jr. was going to come back um, but uh, I did 251 and 252 the first one with the black costume then Leonardi did 253 and 254 and his pencils were coming in and I thought he did a fantastic job of handling that suit with very little blue highlight and all that kind of stuff and uh, and I and he's the one that tweaked the uh, the spider the white spider and gave it an extra break in the leg made it look a little more organic and stuff um, so I was I just kind of followed what he was doing after I saw what he did I was doing my little Ditko shtick still uh, which I thought worked with the black suit but uh, for, for the actual handling of the black suit, I was taking my cues off of Leonardi's two fill-ins. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, it was it was uh, a very different time. It was scary for everybody. I mean, we were getting hate mail like crazy before everybody saw it. And remember, that was way before email. You were just getting your reactions, you know, three months later in snail mail, you know, that kind of thing. So it was, you know, the, the, the hate mail was so bad that at one point Shooter said to DeFalco, bring it in in, in uh, 252, get rid of it in 253. And Tom said, we can't do that because it doesn't get introduced until like Secret Wars number eight. So we have to at least hang on to it for those seven or eight months until it's introduced in Secret Wars before we get rid of it. And Shooter agreed with the logic of that. So, And then by the time we got around to getting rid of it around that time, the, the, all the positive mail was coming in. And that's why we went into that that phase where uh, Black Cat made him a cloth version of it and, and all that kind of stuff because everybody, by that point, everybody loved the design. Once they saw it, they loved it. Well, you know, it, it was crazy. It was it was crazy. And, uh, you know, it seemed like whatever outfit we had him in, people were demanding the other one. <laughs> uh, Hanzo the Razor asks, uh, what did you do to capture the style of Kirby on your Thor run? And Ditko for your Spider-Man run. What was your thinking, and how did you make sure not to get too close to those styles, and instead just capture their flavor? Well, I appreciate the fact that he he thinks I accomplished that because, you know, I, I fully admit I did lifts. I I, I, I would do swipes to uh, in, in an attempt. I, that's one of the things that's always been funny to me is that uh, critics think you're trying to get away with something when you do a swipe. Um, in my experience, I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for other for other illustrators. But for myself, when I do a swipe, I want you to recognize it. It's kind of like if a director does a, a uh, you know uh, an Alfred Hitchcock move, and he's okay when fans sit there and go, "That was so Hitchcock." Thanks, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's what we're going for. We're going for that collective uh, that's what i'm going for i'm going for that collective moment of recognition where everybody goes yeah god these are fun uh so when i would do a thor lift it was always usually like a classic kirby shot or like with ditko at one point do you remember the one ditko swinging shot that they used to use on the old 67 cartoon absolutely where it would just come right towards you yeah i used that shot one time and i even made the background look like the cartoon <laughs> 
because that's the moment I wanted. In the course of the storytelling, there was all this other stuff going on, and we just cut for one panel to Spider-Man heading there to, to the rescue. And I just wanted everybody to have that one moment where they go, Whoop, as Spider-Man's coming towards you, you know, that kind of thing. So for me, you know, that, that's that's what the deal is. Now, as far as doing Ditko on Spider-Man and Kirby on Thor, I just feel like if, if you do those characters without recognizing their root, that that can be a real mistake. Um, studying Ditko for Spider-Man and his storytelling and his approach and his his attitude on figures and, and certainly his attitude on uh, Spider-Man. It's what makes the character unique. It's what makes the character special. Mm-hmm. And even after I started to abandon the, the, the straight Ditko riff on Spider-Man, my, my hope was that my pencils were still informed by the time I had done Ditko. I was still trying to keep that vibe. Uh, alive, and the same for for Thor. I mean, because once Eric became Thor, I didn't feel like um, it was still the same character. You know, I mean, if you're going to do Thor, I think you need to be informed by Kirby because nobody did the character better than Kirby. Um, and if as we moved into the Eric becoming Thor stuff and more updated costume and everything, I, I abandoned the Kirby as just you know. Kirby had never made any statement about Eric as Thor, you know. So there, there was something that it was just you know it was time to abandon that and and move into my own my own style, which tends to be more uh, Ramita Basema, you know, influenced and stuff. Which you know those guys just they knew what they were doing. Um, I again don't apologize for my obsession with that era because quite frankly I think the Kirby's and the uh, Will Eisner's of the world and the Steve Ditko's of the world they perfected the visual language and I'm not saying that it's not wonderful to see somebody you know thinking outside the box and experimenting and everything but the kind of visual language that they developed that has become the core of what we do now I don't think anybody's ever done it better. They they not only invented the wheel, they perfected the wheel. And again, you know, being a fan of the comics of the '60s and '70s, the those Marvel comics has reached out and grabbed you by the throat and involved you. The 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 the, the human characters were very organic. The illustrators just knew what they were doing, and you you know they created this wonderful three-dimensional world where these characters moved around in and uh that's what i try to do every time i sit down to work on a comic i i try to approach what these guys used to nail every month and uh but yeah i I just don't think you should even approach spider-man without without immersing yourself in in ditko's spider-man and i don't think you should attempt to do Thor without immersing yourself in, in Kirby's Thor. So for me, they were educational periods. They were, you know, I, I was learning the character from the ground up, let's say. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really, it helped me as a storyteller and it helped me as, uh, uh, you know, in, in many, 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 many ways. And, uh, quite frankly, a lot of fans resent and hate me for it. And that's, that's okay too. That's how it goes. Yep. Uh, question I wanted to ask was um, when it comes to the, whoever's inking you who do you think kind of makes you look the best 
in terms of the inks. That's I mean I know that's a tough one because you worked with a lot of great inkers, but yeah, Adam, I've been so blessed with the inkers I've worked with. Um, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people's favorite, and I completely agree with it, was Brett Breeding. Uh, I got to work with Joe Sinnott. Uh, my God, um, I got to uh, Sal Baseva is just amazing. Um, you know, as as far as really, you know, not enhancing my pencils at all, just maintaining my pencils. And wow, I, there's no good way to say that. Um, you know, some inkers, uh, you know, Brett came from an era where inkers were finishers. Okay. So Brett can't help but enhance what, what he's looking at. Okay. Uh, when you lay something down in pencils and it's handed to Brett, he's going to handle the musculature and he's going to handle the shading and everything the, the way he does, okay? Which is great, and it looks fantastic, okay? And it always has looked fantastic, and it has enhanced my pencils immensely on Thor and, uh, and on the early issues of uh, A-Next and anything else Brett has ever inked over me. Um, Senate, uh, when I got the chance to work with Joe, when Joe uh, agreed to be our regular inker with issue 400 of Thor, um, it was like the heavens opened up and the angels sang. And uh, but what really surprised me was how much he captured my full pencils. He was incredibly faithful to my full pencils because you know a lot of people when they when they get a Joe Sinnott they just say oh great I can go to breakdowns and Joe knows everything's what he's doing and and you're going to get a fantastic finished job. You know, like with Tom Palmer, when I worked with Tom Palmer on Star Wars, my job was just to tell the story, and the finishes were always up to Tom. Hmm. And I, you assume sometimes that that's what it's going to be like with Joe Sinnott. But I penciled 400, not knowing that it was going to be inked by Joe Sinnott. And he was so faithful to the pencils that I actually full penciled more of Thor than I planned to because it was such a pleasure to be inked by Joe Sinnott and, and still realized that it was my stuff, if you understand what I'm saying. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and so working with Sal, is, and that's when I, when I misspoke and said that they don't enhance or add anything, Sal captures my pencils perfectly. Um, you know, sometimes when you're working with a finisher, what makes it out to the public isn't necessarily what exactly what you put down on the page but that's part of the collaboration and all that matters is the finished product because that's what the reader is going to see um but when it comes to you know petty little things like your ego when you spend a lot of time on a shot and you want it to look like that you you know i mean when sal inks me uh, i know that what i'm putting down on the page is going to make it out to the audience and you know in in exactly the same way i'm putting it down so it makes it keeps me honest and it makes me willing to take six passes at a face to get it right because i know sal's going to maintain it Mm -hmm. does that make sense i absolutely (laughs) okay uh so i mean it's been a huge pleasure i mean the idea that sal basema finds my work solid enough to send it out to the public the way I penciled it is I'm sure Sal would you know he he would just kind of uh, you know 
he would poo-poo this, but but the bottom line is, you know, the idea that Sal Basama finds my work acceptable and adequate and and uh, and good enough to go out there with his name on it is the, the highest compliment anybody could ever give me. Um, I have been very lucky to work with some of my idols, uh, you know, Sal and Ramita Senior and, and Joe Sinnott and 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 even Brad to a degree because you know he was in the he was in the industry before I was. I was you know in art school when uh, Avengers West Coast came out and uh, his inks over Bob Hall and everything, you know, and uh, I was a huge fan. So when I got him on Spider-Man 252, it was a huge thrill. So, uh, yeah, I've been incredibly lucky with inkers and, uh, because, and, and I've never really had much of a desire to ink myself because I came into this industry knowing that it was a hugely collaborative effort and, you you know you find that one anchor that you work hand in glove with and uh, and you go with it. I mean Al Milgram was another guy who just uh, we worked really well together. He saved my ass on deadlines all the time and and I was I've always been very happy with the work. He you know I'm a big uh, Frank Giacoya fan. Uh, you know real traditional pen and brush type stuff and that's what Al does and. Uh, you know, I thought we worked very well together as well. I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, and, and that's terrible. I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, I've worked with, uh, you know, Terry Austin, Inc., the kid who collects Spider-Man. Holy mackerel. Because uh, he just did a wonderful job of kind of keeping that Ditko line, uh, that, that kind of Ditko brush line, and just beautiful, beautiful stuff. So, yeah, I've been incredibly lucky. Now, this last question is from uh, Make Mine Marvel. He asks, during your Spider-Man run, there were a bunch of fill-ins. Uh, what was your perspective on why there were fill-ins during this period? Well, that depends on who you ask. Well, we're asking you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, there, I, I'm, I'm not the greatest. I mean, I, you know, I did seven years on Thor and uh, was uh, supposedly known around the office as Ralph Macchio's monthly Torque Mata. Um, now, for for viewers, listeners who don't know what that is, he was a uh, he was a, a, a torture expert uh, during the, uh, the 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 Crusades, I believe, or something. Okay. Uh, anyway, so so the 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 upshot being that every month I tortured Ralph Macchio uh, by running right up against the schedule, and I I will not. Uh, deny that to some degree although we survived several bi-weekly runs and all that kind of stuff you know um when it came to spider-man the the books i think you'll notice that a lot of those fill-ins happened once james ousley became editor um and there was a lot of confusion and havoc that came along with Jim Ousley's stint as editor. Um, I I don't remember specifics, uh, maybe because we always think of ourselves as the hero in the stories and not the dog, but uh, I don't remember any specifics about me running terribly late or anything. I remember a lot of confusion about scripts. I remember two issues of Spider-Man were done and in the house, uh, the, the two-part Fire Lord story was done and oh, yeah. was pulled off the schedule because from what I understood at the time, and I have no independent confirmation of this, from what I understood 
third party at the time. Uh, Jim was walking around basically thinking about doing it as a graphic novel or something like that. And in the meantime, was running fill-ins. And it led to some consternation and some fevered phone calls between myself and Tom DeFalco where, you know, what the hell? He's making us look like idiots. You know, those books are done. Why, why isn't he running them? You know, that kind of thing. Um, so there was a lot of havoc and confusion. Uh, you know, uh, Ousley, uh, under his new uh, name and everything, uh, does a blog, and he has talked about his side of it and, uh, you know, that he was overwhelmed by the, uh, the editorial position and, and uh, you know, made mistakes and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I think all of those factors just contributed to uh, a period of um, confusion and uh, so I, I, you know, quite frankly, I'll take my share of the blame. Uh, some of it might be on me. Um, there was always this claim that DeFalco was running late because he was traveling to England a lot and everything. I have n- absolutely no memory of Tom ever being anything other than on time with his plots. So I would take a hit before I would point the finger at DeFalco because I have no memory of DeFalco ever being late on a plot. Uh, but I do know that there were times that I, I ran a little close to deadline myself. So, uh, you know, it, 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 this isn't as easy as it looks from the outside. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I see people even on the message boards now with the amazingly detailed work that everybody is doing these days and going, come on, how hard can it be? And, you know, try it sometime, my friends. It's, <laughs> you know, 20, 22 pages of art, and especially when you're doing a regular monthly comic, you know, it... Uh, it can be it can be work intensive. It can be labor intensive. It can be nerve intensive. You know, so uh, you do your share of uh, you know two thirty in the morning things and stuff. And uh, I don't uh, you know it, it doesn't surprise me that some of these guys that are going as overly detailed as they are you know, are not built for any kind of monthly schedule. You know, for sure. Uh, that was the I guess the last uh, listener question at the moment. But I have one last question for me. Uh, which is not an A-Next question, so don't worry. I'm not worried at all. I'm going to switch I was gears. I talking about A-Next, man. I'll, talk, I'll do a whole hour on A-Next if you want. Well, we, I think we just did. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask, and maybe in a future uh, interview we can go into more detail on this, but I was always curious, what, uh, what brought you into the Spider-Man Hobgoblin Lives miniseries? Uh, again, uh, being pleasantly surprised that I was asked. Um, in all honesty, uh, my understanding was that they asked John Romita Jr. first because he co-created the character with Roger, mm-hmm. and he was unavailable, and I was this, the, the guy who also worked on Hobgoblin material originally, so they then offered it to me, and I was, I, I made myself available. I was, uh, I love Raj uh, as, a, as a human being, and as a writer, I'm a huge fan, and you know that the Hobgoblin Lives was a strange animal because that was something Roger had pitched almost every year since the you know since uh, Wolverine versus Spider-Man and and you know all that wrap up and everything he had pitched that idea 
to any editor that would listen. You know, I mean, he would he would pitch it to the Spider-Man editor at the time and all this kind of stuff. So it wasn't until Bree Vorton Greenberg got in there that he pitched it and, and they caught it and they were interested in doing it. And, uh, you know, uh, Tom DeFalco, also a huge Roger Stern fan, he just didn't feel, he felt enough time had passed that, you know, nobody would be really all would really be all that interested in it and all that kind of stuff. I was curious to read it, uh, very curious to read it. And I uh, got it from Roger uh, or from Brevoort or whoever, and I read it, and I was amazed at how he reintroduced all the suspects uh, and told a self-contained story that really hit all the right marks to, you know, whether you read the original run or not, this was an interesting suspense story to me. Mm-hmm. This was an interesting who is the bad guy story. And, you know, the fact that it let Roger get back to the original uh, concept was secondary to the fact that to me it was an incredibly enjoyable story that I was very, very happy to be a part of. Um, we suffered a little bit, I think, from, from problems with the inking. Um, uh, uh, George Perez originally had signed on to do it, and he did all the covers. And then I don't know whether he got called away to uh, another assignment or whether he just decided he didn't want to work on it anymore or whatever. And then the second issue was a little choppy. Uh, I think it was Jerome Moore and Scott Hanna or something like that. Um, and then by the third issue, we had Bob McLeod, who, who did a really nice, solid job on the, on the climax. So it, it got choppy in the middle, unfortunately. Um, you know, it would have been great if McLeod could have done the whole thing, or if Perez could have done the whole thing, or, or if we could have had, you know, three consistent anchors, that would have been fantastic. But overall, I think it's a strong, uh, a strong series and a, and a, a solid story, and uh, it's one of the Spider-Man projects that I've worked on since I've been off the book that uh, I was very proud to be a part of. And I don't know uh, if most fans are aware. But we used Hobgoblin then in Spider Girl, mm-hmm. and, and it was our real opportunity to play with Roderick Kingsley as a character as Roger had established him. And boy, he's a bastard! <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so we had a lot of fun, uh, kind of bringing, you know, this this darker uh, energy to the Spider Girl books for a while. And, uh, and, you know, and his, we even handled the first several stories like it was kind of like, you know, this really dark, badass character comes to Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and starts breaking things, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it was uh, it was a really fun character to do. And that wouldn't have happened if Roger wouldn't have been able to come back and and uh, return to his original concept. So uh, we got a lot of mileage out of it. And. you know, especially the first and second, uh, the first and third issues, I'm very, very proud of. So. As uh, again, for me, I was I guess 13 years old when it came out, and I had just started kind of buying Spider-Man on a regular basis, and uh, I I remember loving it. And again, I what I liked about getting into comics when I was a kid, which is only makes me laugh when people say they want things to be new reader friendly now is that I loved comics where I didn't know what was going on but there there was enough to kind of put it together and it made me want to go back it wanted, made me want to know more so I've, ne- I've never understood this predilection with companies now they want to make it so that no it's got to be able to be new reader friendly I grew up in the you know reading comics in the 90s which was not new reader friendly uh, it was co- complex and very complicated but that actually made me want to be a reader more because but, I want to understand were, but- it 
excuse me, Anna, but you were getting in the stories you were reading, you were getting enough information to enjoy that story. True. And I think really when they say new reader friendly now, that's what they're talking about. Because, you know, mm. if you try to pick up any given comic book now, there's there's no recap, there's no uh, anything. Uh, you know, because I was, I'm the same as you in a different era, because like in the late sixties, early seventies, I would pick up an issue of the Avengers secondhand or something or trade it with a friend. And, you know, uh, Clint Barton would be Goliath you know, <laughs> and, he, and he would say something like his name used to be Hawkeye, but now it's Goliath. And then yellow jacket would run up and said, I've never been prouder of the man who succeeded me as giant man. And I'm going, okay, so that, so that's Hank Pym. <laughs> <laughs> that's the guy that was hot. That's cool, you know that kind of thing. But you, you had all that information there, you know. And when people try to, you know, give you that information, when they try to download that information as part of a script now, the new fans go, "What's such horseshit? Why nobody talks like that?" <laughs> you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, uh, you know, there there are things about comic books, about the craft of comic books. That, you know, yes, yeah, stories aren't like real life because real life seldom has a point. Hmm. Stories are supposed to, you know, so I got to say, I like your voice of the Internet. <laughs> um, it's uh, it reminds me we had an interview a few months ago with Scott Lobdell and he had a very similar take on what the Internet sounds like. <laughs> well, it's an amalgam. And I, I, I do enjoy that. <laughs> Because I, well, I, uh, I feel yeah. ha- half the time when I'm on Newsarama or those types of sites and I read some of the, the top comments, I'm like, really? No no one talks like this. <laughs> well, what's interesting, pal, is that, is that you know, like we're, we're right now with this Fantastic Four movie that's on. I haven't seen it yet. I've read everything everybody else has read about it. But, you know, I, what, what really gets me is I enjoyed the first two Fantastic Four movies. Yes, they got Doctor Doom wrong in the first movie. But by the... The Rise of the Silver Surfer is one of my favorite comic book movies because I think they nailed the Fantastic Four characters. I'm waiting to see a Spider-Man that is as close to my perception of the character as that for those, the Rise of the Silver Surfer was to the to the Fantastic Four characters. And uh, what, what, what's interesting to me is that it what becomes truth is you know Ben Affleck's Daredevil was shit. Uh, the you know the, those two Fantastic Four movies were shit. And, I mean, but I see people saying Age of Ultron was shit. And, uh, you know, Thor the Dark World was shit. And I, I sit there and go, what the hell are you looking at? What, what are your perceptions of these characters? Because, you know, not for nothing, but I've known the characters probably longer than that kid. And, no, they did a really good job on capturing the characters, you know? I, there were, I mean, one example of that is that there were people complaining about, you know, the, the cannons in Asgard, the, the kind of laser cannons that were firing. Uh, and wh- wh- when did this become Star Wars and all that kind of stuff? I said, hey, pick up a Jack Kirby issue where they would roll up the ice gun, guys, you know? <laughs> These people actually are using the source material, and you're giving them crap for it, you know? So... It, it really is the eye of the beholder type stuff. And, I, you know, the Internet, the anonymity of the Internet gives everybody that voice to just uh, become very uh, Trump and uh, just <laughs> kind of let sh- stuff fall out of your mouth without any real thinking about it, you know. And, Unfortunately, uh, yeah. 
and it's silly because everybody, you know, I, I just recently, a uh, young guy posted a, uh, an appreciation of Spider-Girl up on the Spider-Girl uh, message board. And I thanked him for it because, you know, I, I, you've got to recognize that in this day and age, in any day and age, any kind of creative endeavor is a subjective thing. It's a subjective affair. One man's art is another man's garbage. I mean, there are going to be people that are listening to this podcast and going, friends is a hack. Why is Adam even interviewing that guy? <laughs> and hey, next, oh, what a bunch of crap. You know, that and on and on and on. And, and there was one guy on a message board one time that it was just his, he started a thread by the supposition, or not the supposition, the, the declaration that Ron Friends does not deserve to have a career. Because every line he draws is ripped off of Sal Buscema, and he doesn't have a style of his own, and the, the fact that he's had any career at all is a crime against nature. Okay. <laughs> now, in the course of the other posts, people said, I like this Thor stuff, I like this Spider-Man stuff, what do you, come on, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was nice that there were people that have enjoyed the work and, and all that kind of jazz, and... And, uh, in, you know, when we had newsstand sales, the sales supported the idea that there were some people out there that liked me. Um, yeah, it's good that that thread didn't go the other way and everyone was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I, that's, I, believe me, I, I, was, I was reading the thread through, uh, through my fingers because I, <laughs> I, you know, plenty of, there are, I, I know there are a lot of people out there that, that do not enjoy my work and do think I'm a hack. But, you know, who else went through that? Salpasama. And I will stand next to Sal Buscema on any line you draw in the sand, my friend. Uh, it just, it is what it is, you know? And, uh, yes, I learned from Sal. I learned from John. I learned from uh, John Romita Sr. And uh, I will not apologize for that because I don't think it gets any better than that. And I will always, you know, that's what I'm trying for. Mm-hmm. So. This time I promise it's my last question. Okay. I promise. I've said it three times, so this is it's, this is the actual last question. It is not a problem. <laughs> if you come up with another one, please don't hesitate. Okay. My last question was, uh, what is the oddest or more most kind of interesting uh, commission request that you've received? Either a character that you wouldn't have expected someone asked for, or just something very kind of very unique about it that's not as typical? Well, let's see. I, there's something currently on my mind that that i will mention for that i have done a lot of characters that just come out of left field there's one gentleman who's a regular customer who asks uh, he wants every legionnaire in every permutation of their costume ever and he keeps coming back for more uh he's got myself and he's got mike grell and he's got pat olive and he might even have a couple other people working on these things and you know, the Legion has been handled by so many different artists that, you know, some of the variations are just, you know, they colored the lapel on the outfit differently or something, and he wants every single permutation. So I've been doing a lot of characters that, frankly, I've never even heard of before uh, for, for that gentleman. Um, but currently, there's it's a piece that I've seen other people, Pat Olive's done them, and, and it seems to be a thing that's out there and it's not just one person asking for it so it becomes a kind of an interesting thing Spider-Man, Peter Parker doing the Superman pulling your shirt open thing Okay. that is identified almost exclusively with Superman 
And for some reason, people are fascinated with the idea of it being Spidey doing it. Now, you know, uh, Tobey Maguire did it in the first movie, which I thought was kind of goofy. Um, I've done it a few times in story, but it's always, I always have him like running up a wall while he's doing it or something, you know, something that's, that's distinctively Spider-Man. Yeah. You know, type of thing. Um, but it's, it's you know, I, I've done some commissions years ago. I did one and I had him stick him to a wall and, and I see Pat Olive's been uh, on his page. He's done a few that um, are the same type of thing. And I don't get it um, because, you know, okay, if you're a Spider-Man fan, you're a Spider-Man fan. Why do you want to see, see him doing something like Superman would do? You know, there, I, I just don't get it myself. Uh, that's basically just me. Um, the weirdest one I could think of is somebody asked for a commission of Hellboy sitting on Silver Surfer's board holding Dr. Doom's mask. Weird. And I did it, and I just signed it. Huh? <laughs> uh, so I don't know what that was about. I, <laughs> I have no idea what that was about. But yeah, you do get some some uh, some interesting uh, requests uh, at conventions. It's it's not usually as uh, you know they they don't put as much thought into it, so they're they're not. Uh, they're not such head scratchers, you know, that kind of thing. It's just people want their favorite character or something like that. I, the, what I don't enjoy is when they come up and they say, well, what do you want to do? And I said, what do I want to do? Uh, I want to go get a beer, but, you know, <laughs> I can draw any time. You, just, <laughs> you, you should do? just draw the beer you'd you like, like to buy. To yes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and wh- where can people um, find commissions of yours or, or order commissions? Well, it's CatskillComics.com. Uh, it's on the on the web. It's a, run by a gentleman named Scott Cress, and he's uh, terrific at what he does. And he's a good friend and a good man. And uh, I, I've, you know, I, I, as busy as I've been staying, I, I try to keep up with my commissions. Uh, I think we're working at like allow nine to twelve weeks or something like that, and. Uh, I've got a bunch of them I'm working on right now. I actually have to do a Peter Parker opening his shirt thing, and and I've been fighting with it because, you know, they, you, you do those things, and, and it's a single figure of him opening his shirt, and if you just go straight on, it's from the waist down, it's just a guy in slacks. <laughs> and it's not all that interesting, you know, that kind of thing to me. And I'm trying to, I, you know, this this specific customer asked for it to to be a real Superman vibe so I don't feel comfortable making him upside down or sticking to a wall or something like that which I would normally do because he really seemed to want the Superman thing going on so uh, the last sketch I did was I'm just playing with more of a down angle so you you get to see his his chest and the hands pulling the shirt open and the legs become less a part of the design you know that kind of thing which spotty costume is, is he opening he, he left it open to either black or red and blue. So I'm going with the red and blue, but yeah, I, you know, sometimes I don't get these people, but that is not part of the requirement. It's not for me to understand. Uh, you know, there's one gentleman that, that's like a big, he's a big fan of the recorder from Thor. 
Really? He just gets he gets recorder commissions from everybody. You know, that's kind of cool, actually. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's just, that, he settled on that character. And it, the, one of the things that was really cool is that he asked me to just do the chest plate open, you know, so I did an amalgam of all the different Kirby versions and stuff of all the knobs and all the, the stuff in the chest. And he, he took... Uh, he took it and made one iron-on and put it on a green t-shirt. Oh, really? And it was. It ended up looking really cool, you know, because he's, he's a big fan of the recorder. What are you going to do? You know, he just had Brett do... He just had Brett Breeding do one for him, uh, like a turnaround, like a character model sheet. And, uh, you know, so it's pretty crazy. I, the recorder's a cool character. I mean, I we got to do him in Thor, and I, I enjoyed the character, but, uh, yeah, this, the, he... With all those characters that are out there, it's kind of neat when somebody can, you know, kind of pick one and become a, a loyal follower. You know, that's kind of interesting to me. Yeah, that is interesting. I, I, I'm trying to think who would be my character, and I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's kind of like, you know, who would you get for a tattoo? You know, that's, that's, a, that's a big decision, you know? You don't get to... You don't get to change your mind too often on that one. No, that's true. That that's more or less permanent. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you know, and it's like I said, there's you know, I, I get a lot of hobgoblins and a lot of black black costume Spider-Mans and all that kind of jazz. And uh, there are worse things to be known for, believe me. What would you say the split is between when you do Spider-Man commissions? What do you think the split is between black costume and uh, red and blue? I, I think the vast majority are red and blue. Um, but there, there are people that you know approach me specifically for black because that's that's what I'm known uh, I'm known to have been a part of that you know. But uh, the lion's share of them are, are classic Spidey. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Ron, Ron, thank you so much for uh, doing the show for spending two hours with us. Wow! How about that? Yeah, how about I, that? I hope you can edit this down into something manageable. Oh no, it's going to be two hours. Oh, okay. All it's, right. No, it's been it's been a pleasure, Adam. You're you're. It's been a lot of fun. You're very good at this, and uh, I appreciate your having asked me. It's uh, it's very flattering. Oh, my pleasure, and thank you so much for being part of it. And we'll definitely have to get you on in the future. Talk more Hobgoblin lives. Probably not more A next because we've done that to death, but we'll see. <laughs> Fair enough, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you.